0: Welcome to The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. I'm Doug Adams. And I'm Kirk McElhern. Hello, and as always, thank you for listening. This is episode number 41 of The Next Track, and today we're happy to welcome back our good friend Andy Doe. Andy, it's great to have you join us again. Thanks for having me back on the show. So Doug
1: and I were talking last week, and we were thinking about the old days of hi-fi sound, and it crossed my mind that I remembered people who had a big amplifier and a big tuner and a big turntable. But they also had another device in their stack of stereo equipment, one of those old equalizers with the little slides that you would drag up and down to adjust the frequencies. And I was really wondering whatever became of
2: EQ? That is an excellent question. (laughs) So uh, let's let's talk about EQ. EQ is something that Uh, has existed on recording consoles since about the 1950s. It became quite popular in home stereo equipment in the 70s and 80s. And uh, before, before we talk about what it does and why you might or might not want to use it at home, I think it's important to understand what it is and how it works. So what EQ does is it allows you to turn up and down different frequencies in isolation. So the simplest... EQ that you might have on a hi-fi is a treble and bass. And uh, you could turn up the very low notes, or you can turn up the very high notes, or you can leave them both kind of in the middle. And uh, this will adjust just those frequencies, and it will help you to make the music sound more like you want it to.
1: So it's a good idea to start with a simple stereo amplifier where you just have treble and bass, where you just have two adjustments to make. I can think of some valid reasons why you would want to adjust them if your speakers are set up in such a way that you're getting a booming sound from your bass, you might want to turn it down because it might, you know, be a little bit overwhelming. Now, this is a pretty gross... EQ setting you you don't have individual frequency bands but it would still make a difference or another thing as you get older you don't hear the high sounds as well so you might want to bump the treble up and make it sound make the music sound a little bit more like it should.
2: That's right so it gives you the opportunity to compensate either for a flaw in the listening environment for a flaw in uh your hearing or for a flaw in the playback equipment or possibly a flaw in what was recorded in the first place. And this is why EQs existed as a as a function, as an option on recording equipment for a very long time. Because when you're recording something you you might want to slightly change the sound that's coming in through the microphone. Maybe that microphone's not great. Maybe uh that instrument is miked in such a way that it is emphasizing certain notes, perhaps you like the sound of a little bit less bass on this instrument, a little a little more treble, a little more in the middle on this instrument. And when you come to mix a record, you can make very detailed adjustments in the EQ so that, uh, for example, uh, if you've got a bass guitar and a bass drum playing in time with each other, the two will be kind of competing for space at the bottom of the mix, and you might want to might want to reduce some of the upper frequencies of the bass guitar, reduce some of the lower frequencies of the bass drum, so that the two instruments, or or vice versa, so that the two instruments both have a little bit of space where they can be heard. I've been in situations where we used to use um, uh, EQ as an
0: effect. So, for instance, to make a, a voice sound like it's coming over the phone or for creating room ambience effects where you kind of raise the low-end EQ and throw a little reverb on it to give that ambience.
2: That's right. You can also use it to fix problems. So for example, if something in the room is making a buzzing sound and you can't find it, you can't track it down, maybe you can't find it, you can't turn it off. Uh, if you've got a buzz and you know it's at 50 hertz, you can, with a sophisticated equalizer you can identify just sounds at 50 hertz and completely remove those from the channels on your recording that are affected by it and in doing so you'll you'll completely remove that problem
1: so why do stereos have just bass and treble i seem to remember having seen some amplifiers back in the day that also had a mid-range adjustment but why is it limited to just those two frequencies
2: well it's limited to those two frequencies because that's how many knobs they decided to put on the on the stereo. It it became it became cost effective to install multi band equalizers in the in the nineteen eighties uh, because you could put these on a microchip instead of using separate transistor circuits for them. And this was a this was a feature that looked kind of fancy. It was a bunch of high-tech-looking controls that old equipment didn't have and new equipment did have, and it became such a fashionable thing that uh, you could buy radios in the 80s. We didn't have EQ, but did have graphs drawn on the front because EQ was a thing that that looked sophisticated and modern. So what about the loudness button? What's the point of that? Okay, so the loudness button is an interesting interesting. EQ function uh, what it does is it makes the very low sounds and the very high sounds louder relative to the stuff in the middle and and it does this for a specific reason which is that when you turn down the volume on a hi-fi the mid-range still still works fairly well but it tends to be with less good quality speakers and less good quality amplifiers, that the high and low notes drop off and, and all you can really hear is, is the middle. And so what the loudness button does is it puts them back in. So it makes it sound louder without being louder. The loudness button is for you to press when it's quiet. And this might seem like a fancy feature, but what it's actually doing is compensating for an existing flaw in the, in the amplifier. And if the amplifier were designed in a more sophisticated way, it would do this compensation automatically and you would have a flat frequency response at any volume.
1: So we start with an amplifier that's got bass and treble, but back in the days, I remember these things that had, what, 10 different frequency bands, 20? Did did anyone really use them and and if they did how did you know how to adjust it? I mean, it's all subjective, right?
2: Okay, so uh with a more sophisticated EQ, we're not just talking about making it sound a bit less thumpy or making it sound a bit less tinny. We're we're able to make quite specific adjustments to individual frequencies. And the most sophisticated physical EQ units that you can buy for use in studios generally have 31 bands. And 31 bands of EQ for each channel, left and right. So you have 62 sliders on the front of the box. Why 31? Well, this amounts to about a third of an octave for each slider. Ah, okay. And, And what that allows you to do is to isolate a group of about four notes and turn those up or down. If you had many more than that, then it would just become totally unmanageable and if you had fewer than that then you wouldn't be able to make the sort of compensation that is that is common particularly in live sound so when you're doing when you're doing live amplification for something you have issues with feedback and you have issues with the room not being completely ideal and what, what happens in these situations is that if the sound from the microphone gets into the speaker, it starts to make a humming or whistling noise which gets louder and louder and louder. And if you can figure out at what frequency that is likely to happen, you can remove that frequency from the mix almost entirely, and that will prevent feedback from from happening. So that's that's one way in which you might use one of these 31-band EQs. The other way in which you might use it is... If you play white noise through the speakers and put a microphone in the in the listening position, you listen to the the sound that comes through, and you run it through uh, the spectrum analyzer. You can tell whether or not the the room, the speakers together, are are emphasizing or deemphasizing certain frequencies. And this can happen because of the resonance of the space. It can happen because of flaws in the playback equipment. Um, it can happen because of the placement of the the microphone or the the listening position. And having access to a very, very detailed set of EQ adjustments allows you to compensate for that. And so whenever you look at the desk at a live show, it's very likely that you'll see a a 31-band EQ. And to a certain extent, you could use something like this at home to compensate for the flaws in your living room.
1: I'm thinking about audiophiles who spend hundreds of dollars on cables Whereas if they had a graphic equalizer and a spectrum analyzer, they could analyze their room and make adjustments that would have a much more obvious effect on the sound, couldn't they?
2: Absolutely. And this relates to one of the reasons why EQ is, is far less common as a feature on modern hi-fi equipment, which is that it used to be that speakers were not great at neutrally passing through every frequency and reproducing them in a in a predictable way and speakers have got a lot better over the years and uh, playback equipment has also got a lot more consistent particularly digital playback equipment you get a fairly predictable flat frequency response from it in a way that was difficult to do with vinyl difficult to do with different tape machines and so it, it's it's less useful now to be able to compensate for flaws in the in the equipment. Uh, if you have your speakers on the floor, then being able to turn down the bass would be quite a nice thing to do. But a better thing to do would be to get your speakers up off the floor so that they don't make the whole house shake. And then you won't need to make those adjustments. So one of the reasons why we don't have EQ for making those gross adjustments anymore is because it's it's simply no longer... Necessary with the the other much better quality equipment that we have at affordable prices now.
1: But wouldn't you want to try and optimize your sound for the particular room where you're listening?
2: Absolutely. And some systems do allow you to do this using a set of digital filters that are, that are built in. The problem with doing this with uh, physical EQ, with, for example, 62 sliders on the front of it, is that that's an enormous number of controls that you're likely to only use once when you set up the system. And because of that, as it's no longer the 80s and people are no longer impressed by having lots of sliders on the front of your hi-fi, uh, be- because of that, and because it's actually extremely difficult and fiddly to do, and as a as a audio enthusiast at home, you're not gonna get a lot of practice because you're gonna set this up once in your house. And and the only times you touch it are when your your kids or your cat have fiddled with it. I've always found that the temptation to touch those
0: sliders, even after you may have spent hours initially setting it up, the temptation to fiddle is irresistible. Yes. Because you think, gee, I wonder if I can get it to sound even better because, I don't know, I'm bored on a rainy Saturday afternoon and, and there's a bunch of sliders just asking to be slid. It's irresistible.
2: Oh, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And it it is not helpful <laughs> because it's it's going to, just do more harm than good to have all of these knobs on the front of your hi-fi. Instead, what happens with a lot of good quality receivers, amplifiers, studio monitor speaker systems is they come with a small microphone on a cable. And you put that in the listening position. You set your speakers up where you want them. You furnish the room before you do this so that everything is roughly where it's going to be, because you don't want to, you don't want to move the goalposts on this machine. You, put the microphone exactly where you're going to sit and you hit go and it makes a load of weird noises listens to those weird noises and then it devises the eq settings it needs to to make the sound arrive at your ears with a completely flat frequency response and getting the eq right and correctly calibrated to the room is particularly difficult when you have multiple speaker setups and so it's particularly common to have One of these calibration microphones come with surround systems because there is not just the delay between the speakers to get right, but also the frequency response from what are usually quite small speaker enclosures spaced around the room in in what would normally be less than ideal positions and if you are tempted then to fiddle with the EQ settings so that you can have a little bit more bass or i would like the mids to be a bit brighter then you are wrong because that is not what the producer wanted
0: <laughs> and speaking of of set it and let it alone i know i've noticed this at live shows where the the first song by the band sounds kind of muddy and then it gradually improves as they go on now is this because the sound check is done in an empty house and then, of course, as the seats fill up with people absorbing the sound, some
2: additional tweaking is done. Typically, you would aim to have got the sound exactly right during the sound check, but there are some things that could change in between the uh, the sound check and and the show. Of course, the the room fills up, and you may find that you need to compensate for that. It's also quite likely that there's been a, a supporting act in since the headliner did their did their sound check, and something even though the likely to have their own set of channels on the desk and even though they will have their own set of cables leading to the stage and even though they will have been instructed... that under no circumstances are they to touch anything, still something is going to have gone wrong because there are just too many knobs to twiddle. you got to twiddle them. you got to touch the knobs. You you can't not touch them. (laughs) Yeah,
1: what's the point? Doug and I were talking the other day about these big mixing desks with the knobs, and he was saying it's mostly digital, but if you build a studio and you've got a lot of money, you want the knobs anyway because it's just so much fun to fiddle with them.
2: Absolutely, and nobody takes your recording studio seriously if they walk in and it doesn't have a massive console in it. The massive console... The massive console is there so that the the producer has somewhere to put his laptop on when he's making the record on his laptop. But <laughs> but, but you've got to have it because otherwise it just doesn't look like a studio.
1: Yeah, it just looks like a desk with a computer, and and some studio monitors,
2: and of course some studio monitors. But uh, it's important to remember when you look at those huge studio consoles, every single one of those knobs is some sort of volume control. Right. It seems kind of baffling that there could be that many volume adjustments, but that's what they are. The slider at the bottom is for this instrument, for this microphone, that's how loud it is. And then you can turn up and down the volume of the effects, the proportion of that sound that gets sent through the effects unit. You can adjust the proportion of the bassy part of that sound that gets amplified. You can adjust the total incoming volume. You can adjust the... uh, You can fine-tune those volumes but but every one of those is a different type of volume control and the EQ is a subset of those volume controls you've been the
1: producer or executive producer on a lot of classical records and you've recorded in churches with choirs and you've recorded with instrumental ensembles but you've also recorded organs these big massive breathing monsters that can shake cathedrals I would imagine that EQ is particularly useful when you're recording an organ live.
2: Well, that's that's a good that's a good question actually. Um, it is listening to a, one of my organ records that is the only time that I have ever felt moved to adjust the EQ in my car, because generally, like you you make the record, the EQ gets done in the studio. You set up your system at home and you get it right. You shouldn't need to make a lot of EQ adjustments. But uh, with the organ, you get these extraordinary, very sustained, very pure tones. And they are an invitation to some kind of resonance problem. And uh, in future, I think if if I ever do another high-end audio installation somewhere, uh, I'm going to use organ records as part of the test because... If there's something that's going to rattle, then then list organ works are going to make it rattle because these these really really deep really really loud sustained tones give every resonant frequency in the in the place an, an opportunity to surface.
1: So people are familiar with EQ today in in different ways. If you have an iPhone, if you use iTunes, they both come with EQ options. iTunes has a little window that reproduces the sliders and has 10 bands of frequencies from 32 to 16,000 hertz, and you can adjust them manually, or there are a number of presets, and the presets have names like acoustic and dance and hip-hop and piano and rock, etc. There are also some more useful, more descriptive settings like bass booster, bass reducer, small speakers, spoken word, treble booster, and treble reducer. I don't think a lot of people actually use these. I, I use them with certain headphones on my iPhone that are too bassy, and, and I'll put the bass reducer on, and I find it makes the, the, the music a lot better to listen to. But what's the point of these programs like jazz, hip-hop, piano, lounge, and what what exactly are these
2: doing? Okay, so these these programs are functions which surfaced on equipment round about the time that that. A multi-band EQ disappeared from the front panel of amplifiers, and what Apple is doing here in in this window is they're they're replicating settings that you might find on a on a home hi-fi, and for the most part, I can see no basis for or no rational link between the names of these programs and and what they do to the. EQ. Yeah, they should be named for the, the range of frequencies that they alter, like the bass or treble booster, but
0: I mean the piano EQ preset isn't going to make a, a, a recording of a mariachi band sound like a piano.
2: Right, and and if there were a specific set of EQ settings you needed to apply to every piano recording, then you would think that people who mixed piano recordings would be aware of this and would have done that in the studio. But no, there is, there is no set of EQ settings which are universally going to be a good thing on all systems for piano music or for dance music or or for classical music you know it's kind of fun to flip through them and see if they make it sound any better because they don't make completely absurd adjustments but i I wouldn't feel the need to uh, switch from one to the other as my genre of listening changed If you're listening and you're in front of a computer, you can open
1: iTunes and you can choose Window Equalizer and you can look at some of these. And so if you choose, for example, rock, it increases the high and low frequencies, but leaves the mid-range pretty stable. If you choose jazz, well, it kind of increases at the bottom and then decreases in the middle, and then increases again at the top. Piano is a really odd one because it looks like someone just randomly increased a few of the different bands and it absolutely makes no sense. However, small speakers is pretty linear, increasing at the low end and decreasing at the high end, which is compensating for the ability of these speakers to reproduce things. Or treble reducer, for instance, is flat until you get to 1000 hertz, and then it's reducing. So those do have some logic, but the the, the ones like lounge and jazz, they, they don't make much sense. Now, if we go to the next extreme, AV amplifiers come with something that's called digital signal processing, which allows you to approximate the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam. I mean, what's this all about?
2: Well, this is a strange idea, isn't it? And it relates to a conundrum that has existed in recording since since the time of Edison, which is where are the acoustics supposed to come from? Now, Edison's theory on this was that the recording should be made with no, no room acoustic at all in an utterly dead space, so that it sounded like the instruments were inside the the gramophone and and the acoustic of the recording would be added by the room that you're in. At the the opposite extreme of this, you have uh, very, very, very roomy recordings which have a a lot of reverb on them and capture the space in which they were recorded and which sound best when you listen to them in a a completely dead room. And for for the most part, this, this argument has been settled and... Edison lost and the place to add the acoustics is when you record the thing and so the record should come with all the acoustics it needs and if you're going to try and add additional reverberation to an audio recording it's going to do some funny things it's going to have strange interactions with what's already there and is it is not the ideal time to do it although you know it's fun to have a fiddle with and see how realistic it sounds
1: yeah i've never f- felt that it really sounds realistic but I don't use a surround sound system and you probably actually need that so you've got the 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 sort of the reverberation coming from the back in the rear speakers
2: right it makes slightly more sense if you've got a surround system
1: yeah I I just have a 2.1 and so I have a center speaker for dialogue which is more for movies which I don't use with music and then regular speakers and a subwoofer And here in the office as we know I have a subwoofer and two speakers So, what's the future of EQ? There's no point fiddling with it, except maybe for headphones and small speakers. Does anyone even need to worry about EQ anymore in most situations?
2: So, as time goes by, what we're seeing is uh, cheaper and cheaper equipment with uh, flatter and flatter frequency response. And you'd still get very, very low-end audio equipment with frequency response problems. But for the most part, that's not the equipment that gives you EQ options. Uh, so what, what we're going to see over time is more sophisticated, automated compensation. Um, it's quite likely that these kind of thematic programs are going to wither on the vine as as it becomes clear that nobody really uses them. And
1: Unless they press a button by accident on their remote.
2: Absolutely, absolutely. And then you'll, you'll wonder for three weeks why all your music sounds weird.
1: Why does it sound weird? Yeah, I, this, this has happened to me the other day.
2: Yeah, but I think really the, the, the future of EQ is more and more we'll see it happen in the studio and not so much happening at home where people will be delivered a record that is pretty much finished and sounds pretty much exactly as the production team envisaged. And I think that's, that's a good thing. Like, you know, we, we don't have EQ controls anymore because luckily we don't really need them because our stereos have got better. And that's
1: good news. Okay. Well, thanks so much, Andy, for enlightening us about EQ. It's good to have you back again.
0: It is now time to wrap things up. And as we do every week, we like to give you our next tracks. And here is Kirk with his presentation.
1: For Deadheads, there are a number of important dates in the year. The Grateful Dead release four live recordings a year in the Dave's Picks series. And once a year for the past few years, they've been releasing a box set. And these box sets can go from the 73-disc set of the Complete Europe 72 tour... Or the 30 Trips Around the Sun box set, which had 30 concerts, one from each year of the band's existence. But this year, they've pulled out the stops, and they've come up with something that we've all been waiting for for a long time. It's four concerts from May 77, May 5th, 7th, 8th, and 9th. This is arguably one of the band's hottest periods, and the May 8th, 77 concert is probably, for most Deadheads, one of the top three concerts of all time. Finally, this is getting an official release, and, and actually, the tape's had been lost and so tape traders have had this for a while but we've never had a cleaned up official version of this so my next track this week that i've been listening to over and over is morning dew which is the last song of the show before the encore it's a 14 minute song and it builds up to this malarian crescendo it's almost a mystical experience to listen to this song you got to play it loud. If you have a subwoofer, it's even better. If you remember, we did a show a while back about a subwoofer, and I wasn't sure that the subwoofer made a difference to my audio setup, but now I'm sure that it does. So this is Morning Dew, May 877,
0: by The Grateful Dead. What about you, Doug? As I think I've mentioned on previous episodes, I used to work in rock radio, which was a good thing and a bad thing. And it was good because I got to hear a lot of music that I liked, but it was bad because I heard the music that I liked too much. Now, there are four or five songs on Pink Floyd's The Wall album that I would hear all the time, for years. And there's only so many times you can hear those school kids on another brick on the wall before you start wanting to hurt people. So, it had literally been decades since I've heard The Wall all the way through, from start to finish. And when I did recently, turns out I was okay. I didn't mind. It was pretty good. Now... I know Kirk mentioned some Pink Floyd a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I apologize for the repetition. But my pick this week isn't so much about listening to Pink Floyd's The Wall. It's really about going back and resisting the urge to resist listening to an entire album, which I know nowadays seems kind of quaint. So I just wanted to take this opportunity to say, go back... And find an album that you may have resisted putting on for whatever reason because, like me, you were burnt on it, or you're too cool nowadays, or if your kid catches you listening, you'll never hear the end of it. Just put the whole album on and give it a listen. And by the way, the wall sounds as good today as it did when I first put it on in 1979. And that's my next track. This has been The Next Track, a podcast about how people listen to music today. You can find show notes and links to some of the things we talked about in this and other episodes at TheNextTrack.com. There's also a contact form there you can use to send us comments. If you like the show, we hope you'll subscribe in iTunes or your favorite podcast app. And please think about giving us a review or rating. We'd appreciate that. I'm Doug Adams, and for Kirk McElhern, thanks for listening. We'll talk to you next time.